the uh, the thing about the Bible, uh, the thing about the Bible is uh, anytime we read a book, right, uh, we get introduced to all these characters uh, in, in most books. And when we come to those books, I used to love to read as a kid, uh, like real fantastical stories, you know. And in those stories, you always have good guys and you have bad guys, right? Uh, there's all in most stories, like the, the classics. There's good guys, there's bad guys. When we come to the Bible, <laughs> what we find is that there aren't really any good guys, because even the best guys are kind of dumb sometimes, right? And they make mistakes. But what I've thought a lot is that, man, there are some bad guys, though. And so this morning, we're actually going to look at uh, the, the last days leading up, like the last day, essentially, leading up to Jesus' death. And man, when I was studying this week, like I knew this was the text we we're going to be covering. I already knew the four people that are just going to outright reject the authority of Jesus. And I was bound like, and ready to just point a finger at how dumb they are and like how they have these wrong motives and how, man, aren't you glad we're not like that? <laughs> And then like, the more I studied, the more I started diving into the motives behind each of these four people and groups that reject Jesus, I just found myself, golly, I found myself, like I found myself in their, in their sinfulness and in their motives. And so this morning, I, you're probably not going to resonate with all four of these groups. I hope you don't resonate with any of them. I hope you go, Heath, I don't know. I don't have motives like that at all, but I'm going to bet that you've at least struggled with some of these that we're going to talk about this morning. And so this is a really, really uh, different look than I was planning on uh, talking about. Because honestly, um, these are the people that, that, that are working together, for the most part, to bring about the death of Christ. Like the people that we as Christians want to punch in the face as we're reading the text, right? Like, dude, how could y'all do that to the Savior of the world? Like, we see that in the text, but what I want us to do is just... Hold that righteous anger for a moment and let's put ourselves in the shoes of these people and begin to wrestle with it because uh, these bad guys are definitely bad guys, but um, I found myself in them uh, this week and so uh, I pray that God uses it uh, to speak to you today. But um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray before we dive in. Um, we're going to look at four, thing, four groups of people today. We're going to look at a lot of scripture today to kind of get the idea of it, but we really need God to open our eyes to some hard truth. So let me pray before we start. Father, we do thank you for your word. And God, I do thank you for the uh, the almost good guys that we see in the Bible, God, that um, that, that do some incredible things in your name. Um, but God, they also make a lot of mistakes. And God, I want to, in a very difficult way today, God, thank you for these bad guys. Um, God, because this week... God, you've used their stories and, and their boneheaded decisions, uh, God, to lead me to a place of repentance in my own heart. And God, I pray that over our, everyone who's gathered today, those that may be watching online sometime later, God, that, um, that you would lead us all to a place of examining our motives um, in the midst of our decision-making and our daily life. And so, Father God, as we always pray, we ask that you teach us to know you and, and your nature and your character today and that you would be with us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. So point number one. Here we go. Let's just jump right in. Jesus, the first encounter Jesus has is with this guy named Judas. And what we see is that Judas chooses prosperity 
over Jesus. What we're going to see in all four of these is that there's a motive that's driving them to, to, to reject Jesus' authority and make a different decision. And so for Judas, it was prosperity. Context before we read the scripture, though. Jesus has just shared a meal. This is the Passover time for the Jews. And so Jesus has just gathered his disciples together for this Passover meal. And at the end of the meal, as they're kind of wrapping up, Jesus says, hang on a minute. And as part of that meal, he offers them all a piece of bread, which wasn't unusual. But he offers them a piece of bread and he says, this is my body, which is broken for you. And they're like, it's weird. And then they took the cup of wine that was part of the meal, passed that around. He says, hey, as you drink, that's my blood. Right? Like, it's weird. This is a weird moment. But for Jesus, Jesus is helping them understand. He's introducing them. He's introducing to them this new way to remember what he's about to do. And and it's what we now call the Lord's Supper or communion. We're actually going to do that as a church family in a couple of weeks. That'll be really cool. But... um, but they, they, they do that there in this room together, just Jesus and his disciples. And, and then, uh, then Jesus leads them out into this garden, and Jesus knows that his end is drawing near, so he's praying these really intense prayers. You can read those um, in all the gospel accounts. And then Judas shows up, who was one of his disciples, who had kind of bailed during the meal. This is Mark 14, verse 43. I know I didn't tell you where to go, so I'll give you a second. Mark 14, verse 43. Second book of the New Testament. That's what the word of the Lord says. While Jesus was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, suddenly arrived. And with him was a mob with swords and clubs from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. His betrayer had given them a signal. The one I kiss, he said, he's the one. Arrest him and take him away under guard. So when he came, immediately... Judas went up to Jesus and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. They took hold of Jesus and arrested him. Now, in this story, uh, it's considered one of the just greatest betrayals in human history. But what we've got to recognize about Judas is that he was in a lot of ways just like the rest of the disciples. He was living life, doing his thing, and one day this young, really incredible man, teacher, comes to him and says, follow me. And Judas, just like the other 11, said, yeah, like why would I, not, why would I say no to that? And Judas becomes a follower of Jesus, this man who's full of the power of God. And Judas had heard Jesus teach in such a way that left crowds of thousands of people scratching their heads and blown away because no one had ever heard someone teach with such authority. Judas was also witness to many of the miracles that Jesus performed. He had seen Jesus fix the broken things of the world, sickness and death. He was witness to see Jesus calm the storms of the sea from a boat in the midst of it. And Judas had no doubt wondered, as the rest of the disciples did, what kind of authority is this that even the winds and waves obey him? You see, Judas was firsthand witness to Jesus' authority. There's no doubt he had it, he had it, he understood it. He had seen it. Yet in this moment, Judas rejects 
Jesus' authority that he's been witness to for a while now and chooses to turn him in for 30 pieces of silver. You see, the religious leaders that we heard about, uh, the priests, the scribes, and the, the elders, we heard about them back a couple weeks ago. They were the ones that were questioning Jesus, trying to get him in a, uh, trying to, to get him in a corner and make him make a fool out of him. These religious leaders, they needed to arrest Jesus away from the crowds. So Judas was the end for that. He could tell them where Jesus was going to be. So he was that. And then they also wanted to do it at night. They got to make sure they get the right guy. Well, we can't bust up in the 12 and walk away with John. Ah, oh, man. And then Jesus gets away. Like, we got to make sure we got the right guy. So Judas, we don't know whose idea it was, but Judas says, here it is. I know where he's going to be. After the meal, they're going to go to the Olive Garden. Not the restaurant, but the place. They're going to go to the Olive Garden, and he's going to be praying, and that's where we're going to get him. And, and here, here's the deal. Just in case we don't want to grab the wrong guy, I'm going to make sure. I'm going to go up. I'm going to get real close to him. We're picturing street lights, right? Like we're picturing all the technology of today. It's not there. It's an Olive Garden at night. Again, not the restaurant. And so Jesus, Jesus would have been difficult. Like you'd have had to get up close to figure out who was who. So Judas says, I'm going to get up close enough. I'm going to have a conversation. And then the one I kiss, that's the guy you get. So they do this. And this, he approaches Jesus and says, Rabbi, which means like great teacher. It was a, very, it was a term of endearment, a term of appreciation. And it was so hypocritical in the moment, Right? Ah, oh, great teacher, kiss him, get him. Like, and he run away. Like, this is this is the most. This is a terrible situation. Hypocrisy at its best. We don't see a lot of motivation for Judas. Like all through, there's there's a little hint. Some of the other gospel writers like give us little glimpses into Judas's mind that maybe he wasn't a completely honest guy. But it seems that the major piece of motivation for Judas was this thirty pieces of silver. So. At least in some sense, there may have been other motivation, political or something, but at least in some sense, Judas was choosing money over Jesus. He was choosing his own wealth and prosperity over the authority of Jesus. And like I said earlier, that makes my blood boil and it makes me want to fight. Can I just be honest with you? Like the story of Judas should, we are lovers of Jesus and yes, it's what led to his crucifixion and that's what bought our freedom in Christ. But still, this is a man who walked with Jesus and he's a punk. He's a jerk. And I can get there quickly. But again, this week, that's what I wanted. I wanted to talk about how awful Judas was. But before I threw Judas under the bus to you today, God began to wreck my heart. For, for the people of God. And I began to ask questions, and I think we need to ask questions of ourselves. Can we be guilty of this same motivation? Can we be guilty of the same motivation that led to the, to, to the forsaking of Jesus, this relationship with Jesus? Here's the questions. Are there times where in my life I'm faced with decisions, or I'm, I'm faced with a, a, a path or a direction where money is my major deciding factor above all else, right? Whether that's more money at a job, promotion, a, a new thing for your family situationally, 
And we, we, we look at that decision. We see it, and then we begin to say, like, yes, I'm going to dive into that. But we know all along the way that it's not good for the kingdom of God, or we don't even take it into consideration. You're going to be working with a bunch of people that are going to drag you down and hinder your walk with God. You're going to miss out on time with your church family. You don't even consider those things. Now listen, I am not saying that if you miss church for work that you're a sinner and that you are like Judas. That's not what I'm saying. Don't you dare hear me say that. What I'm saying, because I know there, there are people who really love and follow Jesus who have to work on Sundays and Wednesdays regularly. My question for us today is just as we consider these decisions, are we taking into consideration at all Jesus? That's the question. Or is money the only deciding factor as we're making decisions? Because that's what it was for Judas. Judas, there, he didn't look at anything else. They said, hey, you're with Jesus, right? And he said, yeah. Hey, you want to betray him? What's it going to pay? Yep. Ding, ding, ding. Money. I like it. If the only deciding factor that we consider is the money and we never factor in the kingdom of God or our own spiritual growth into our decision making, then that is no better a decision than what we see Judas making. We are guilty of choosing prosperity over Jesus. And listen, we can learn something from Judas here. The money that we make won't be worth it in the end. You know what Judas did with the money? After he betrayed Jesus, the gospel writers tell us that he was like, dude, this was a bad thing. This was a bad decision. And he throws the money back at the, at the temple. He's like, I, I don't want any part of this. And you can do research into, into how much this 30 pieces of silver was. Hey, it wasn't as much as you think. <laughs> I was thinking like, it's going to be like half a million dollars, man. I'm thinking, you know, like it was, this wasn't that kind of money. We're not talking about life-changing money here. But yet, and I think in the same way for us, when we choose money without considering our spiritual walk, no matter what that dollar figure is, the money will seem infinitely small compared to the spiritual life that's suffering greatly. So we've got to take faith in our involvement in the kingdom events into consideration as we make future decisions. But Judas is not the only one who's choosing something over Jesus. We see his prosperity over Jesus. But then we got this group called the Sanhedrin. And well, it's easy to hate them because they were crazy. Point number two, they chose power over Jesus. If you're not familiar with the term, the Sanhedrin was simply a group of Jewish religious leaders who would have, uh, who would have uh, been there to hear problems and court cases, issues among the Jews of this time. They weren't the government. They weren't tied to Rome but they were tied to the temple. They were tied to the, the Jewish practices of the day. And what we know is, is that they had had it with Jesus. They were sick of him. They're the ones that worked the deal with Judas, we find out in the text. They bring Jesus in. So uh, verse 53, uh, this is what we see. They bring Jesus in to hold a trial at night at someone's house. So, sounds real legit, right? It's probably the right protocol. I want you to listen just for all the evidence that this is a crazy witch hunt. Um, verse 53. They led Jesus away to the high priest, um, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes assembled together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the high priest's courtyard. 
and he was sitting with the servants, warming himself by the fire. That'll come into play later. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they couldn't find any. Uh, we'd probably take that, that that's been the ongoing thing. They've been looking for testimony against Jesus. Many were giving false testimony against him, and their testimonies did not agree. You know, they're trying to rig the thing, and they can't even do it. Some stand up and give false testimony against him, as verse 57, stating, We heard him say, I'll destroy the temple made with human hands, and in three days I'll build another not made by hands. Yet even as multiple people stand up and say that, they get the details wrong. That's what the text says. It's a group of people that are so mad at Jesus that they can't, you know what I mean, you can't even see straight. They're not even making good decisions. Verse 60, the high priest stood up before them all and questioned Jesus. So now we're switching to a, a cross-examination here. Don't you have an answer to what these men are testifying against you? What, do you? what do you say for yourself? But Jesus kept silent and did not answer. So again, the high priest questioned him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? And this is the my drop moment. I am, Jesus said, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his robes and said, What do we still need, witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy for yourself. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. This is what we see in the text. Jesus, throughout his ministry, you may not realize this unless you've read it from beginning to end. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he doesn't upplay I don't know if that's a word. Anyway, he downplays the idea that he's the Messiah. Right? Like when people figure it out, he goes, shh, don't tell anybody. And when he reveals it to his disciples or other people, he says, don't tell anybody. Let's keep this a secret. Because all of this has been working to this point. Jesus, throughout his ministry, has downplayed this. But now, we saw three weeks ago, when Jesus comes in a week before, or five days before his death, he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. You remember that story? Which was a fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah. Jesus does it intentionally, riding on that little donkey into town going, yeah, that's right, it's me. It's me. And they recognize it. We see that. Then we find out the next day he goes into the temple to worship. Yes. To whoop some folks? <laughs> yeah. He goes in and starts flipping tables over because they had treated the... We talked about that already. I'm not going to get into that message. But Jesus is taking... He's doing things in this last week of his life that are making it clear to all that he is the Messiah, but he's yet to say it. And then the high priest says, Are you the Messiah? And I know this is just my terminology. Okay? It is not what the text says. But Jesus says in Heath language, show enough. If you've texted with me more than 10 times, I've sent you show enough. That's it's a common phrase around our house. And that's what Jesus is saying in this moment. Yeah, congratulations on figuring that out. He says, I am. And then he, go, he jumps to Daniel 7, which is this... This is this crazy image Daniel has of this sky-riding, God-like figure who's riding clouds around and then is seated at God's right hand. And Jesus says, the cloud rider, that's me. Which was clear to everybody there, the whole group that knew the Old Testament better than we do, 
they heard it for themselves. They were, they, were, they, they were mad. They were fired up. They finally got the confession they needed to put Jesus to death. Because what they're accusing Jesus of is saying he's God. Which was a big accusation. And again, you've got to think, okay? Like we're so, we're, we, we know Jesus. We know all these things. But I think they're trying to do the right thing. Do you see that? They're trying to put... Well, trying to kill him is a different story, but they're trying to silence someone who is saying, I'm God, and going around. If one of y'all stood up one Sunday and said, I'm God, and started talking over me, we would ask you to step outside. Right? Don't try it. We have big men here. Just kidding. But like, that's the craziness. That's a, this is a guy who's going around saying he's God now. He's claimed it right before their eyes that he is the Messiah. So the big question is, why? The whole thing may look like they're trying to do the right thing, but it's not. There's, there's deception and there's false motives going on here. I read, uh, there's a commentary book I read this week. I've been reading it um, as we've moved through the text. But this, like, this chapter was just really cool. And I could put it in my own words, but I thought I'd just read it for you uh, straight out of his mouth. Uh, so this, this part of uh, Mark's gospel that begins to focus on Peter uh, tells us that Jesus was not taken to the chamber of hewn stone which was the normal meeting place of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jews. Instead, he was taken to the home of the high priest, Caiaphas, the son-in-law of Annas, who was probably the most powerful Jew in the land at the time. Caiaphas reigned from A.D. 18 to A.D. 36. Also, this is the only recorded instance of a Jewish trial being conducted at night, which was illegal according to their laws. Clearly, the Sanhedrin did not want the people of Jerusalem to know what was happening lest they come in and march in protest. Jewish law also prescribed that no trial could be held on the Sabbath, a feast day, or on the eve of a Sabbath or feast day. So, strike three. They violated that as well. So why would the religious leaders break all of their own rules just to silence this man? Why did they want him gone so badly? When you read any of the gospel accounts, just pick one. It becomes pretty clear. Jesus almost single-handedly brings down their whole system because their system had been built on power. Yes, they were spiritual leaders of God's people, which should have driven them to a place of humility as it does your pastor. Instead, it drove them to a place of haughtiness and arrogance. They began to think that they deserved the position that they were in. And then here comes this young, hot-shot rabbi who begins to make people question their power. What were they to do with him? It's interesting here that the Sanhedrin loved power so much that they couldn't even see the truth of God standing right before them. As Jesus said, he was a fulfillment of Daniel 7. Their hearts didn't come to recognize it, but came to reject it. They were blinded by their own love for power. This isn't for everybody, more than likely, but we need to check our own motives. Because we all want to be respected to some degree. I've never heard someone say, you know what I need in my life? Less respect from the people around me. That would just, that would be awesome. Like if my boss respected me less, if my spouse respected me less, like that's, anybody feel that way? Probably not. 
Respect is something that we all want, but for some of us, this can become an issue of sin very quickly. Our desire for respect in our home, our desire respect in our workplace, with our friends, or even in our church, can quickly become a major factor in our decisions. Guys, I've seen good men and women fight the Christ-centered direction of a local body of believers called a church. I've seen good women, men and women fight the direction of a church because they were losing power and leadership in the church. People were not looking to them as much as they once did. They would rather see the church's mission halted so long as it meant they were back in the driver's seat. Now, praise God, it's not happened here at East. But do you see that? That's what's going on with the Sanhedrin. They're willing to, they're willing to maybe put to death the Messiah to retain their own power. And we can get there too. Probably not kill people for your power, but willing to do some sketchy stuff. Willing to mistreat people. We talked about with your kids uh, Monday and Tuesday at Kids Camp that we are all made in the image of God. And what that means is that we all have value. But the problem is, is we don't treat each other with value. Why? Because we fight for power and authority over other people. That's what we see going on in the Sanhedrin, and we see it in the church. We see it in our own lives and hearts. Do not let your desire for control or power be anywhere close to the biggest factor in your decision-making. Hold that in check. Our motives matter. So we're breezing through these. Here we go. Sort of. Number three, we see protection over Jesus. And this is a guy who's familiar to us, Peter. Peter chooses protection over Jesus. And because it's Peter and he loves Jesus, this is going to sting a little bit more. Um, Peter's been Jesus' closest friend throughout all this. He's been Jesus' closest disciple to this point in the story. Peter is only one of the 12 that followed Jesus closely enough to hear this part of the story. Have you thought about that? So often we go to Jesus, we talk about how he, how he uh, 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 denied Jesus. But remember, he's the only one of the twelve that's even here, that's hearing what's going on with the Sanhedrin. But then he gets recognized. Listen to this. While Peter was in the courtyard below, verse 66, one of the high priest's maidservants came. You ever recognize somebody from a distance and you think you know them and you try not to stare at them, don't you? You do that glance out of the corner of your eye, and then you think for a bit, and then you look back at them. We were in a we were somewhere yesterday, and I thought I recognized. We were eating at a, a Five Guys because we had a gift card, um, and uh, it, was, it was good. But uh, my daughter, she's sitting across from me, and I was in one of those moments where I was staring at somebody, and she said, "Daddy, who are you looking at?" <laughs> and I said, "I don't know." They just look familiar. And it was super creepy and weird. But oftentimes, that's, 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 that's what's going on. The maidservant, they're all warming themselves around the fire. And she's like, she's looking at this guy. When she saw Peter warming himself, she said, Hey, you were with Jesus, the man from Nazareth. But Peter denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about. <laughs> then he went, he went away from her to the entryway. And a rooster crowed, which that'll be important in a minute. When the maid servant saw him again, she sees him again. You know, he didn't get that far away. She still sees him. She began to tell those standing nearby, this man is one of them. But again, Peter denied it. 
After a little while, those standing there said to Peter again, You certainly are one of them. Dude, you're from Galilee. Why else would you be here? Peter started to curse and swear. I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately, a rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered when Jesus had spoken the word to him, before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. And Peter broke down and wept. So while Jesus is being grilled by the Sanhedrin inside, there's another trial taking place, isn't it? There's another man in the hot seat. (laughs) There's another man who's being questioned. Except the judge this time is not a man of power. It's not someone who's rich. He's not a religious leader. It's a female servant. And she puts Peter on the hot seat and gets the crowd around her to begin to question who he is. And Peter denies all of their claims that he knows or has anything to do with Jesus. Now, if you read the 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 record, the, you read the rest of the Gospels. What you'll find is that um, during that meal, around the time that they were sharing that meal, I was telling you about it at the very beginning. Jesus told his disciples, He said, "Look, it's fixing to get hot. It's going to get crazy, um, and just know that you're going to leave me. <laughs> you're not going to stand by my side." And Peter's like, "No, y'all know what Peter said." He said, no, 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 no. They might. These knuckleheads, the rest of these 11 that you chose, I don't know why, but not me. I'm going to be right by your side. Peter says this. This is straight out of Peter's mouth. I will follow you even to death. Now, of course, Jesus says, nah, dude, you won't. Uh, In fact, before morning, you're going to deny me three times. And that's what we're seeing have happened here. That's why when the rooster crows, it reminds Peter that Jesus uh, had told him this. But it's here that Peter has an opportunity to actually do what he said he was going to do. I'm going to follow you to death. Imagine what this would look like. Jesus is being accused on the inside, accused to death. Peter stands up and says, yes, I too follow this Jesus, right? In a very dramatic way for some reason. And then they come and arrest him. And then there's, there's probably going to be four crosses at Jesus' crucifixion, not just three. Right? Peter's going to be right there with him. He's going to be dying with Jesus if he stands up. But in an effort to save his own life, instinctively he denies knowing Jesus to the point of using strong language to drive home his point. The moment he does, he hears a rooster crow in the distance and that's when it He loses it and cries like a baby. So here in the heat of the moment, Peter quickly chooses to save his own skin over acknowledging Jesus. And dude, we're so quick to throw Peter under the bus for that. But listen, there's an instinctive thing in all of us to save our own skin. The average human being will lie most often to save their life. It takes a a strong person to in the midst of, of uh, facing death, facing, facing something serious to be honest and to own up to something. But Peter has this natural instinct here. And the question is, for us, if and when we are put in the hot seat, how would you respond? It's probably not going to be life or death for us. It's probably not going to be. But it may involve your prestige, your, your popularity at work, 
your relationships. If you say that you're a Christian in certain circles, you might lose some clout with the people, maybe the people that you work with. And when you're put in the hot seat, what will you say? Will you boldly confirm your relationship with Jesus or choose protection instead of aligning yourself with him? We must check our motives. Protection over Jesus. The last one, here we go. Peace over Jesus. This is Pilate. Pilate, here we go, verse 1. As soon as it was morning, having held a meeting with the elders, scribes, and the whole Sanhedrin, the chief priests tied Jesus up, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. The Sanhedrin here brings Jesus to Pilate. Now, he's not interested in their goofy uh, accusations. Pilate's a Roman. He doesn't even believe in our God. He especially doesn't believe that Jesus is some sort of Messiah who's going to do anything So listen to how this interaction goes between Pilate and Jesus. Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him a little smart alecky. You say so. The chief priests accused him of many things. So they start throwing accusations in front of Pilate, all the things they've already talked about. So Pilate goes back to him. He said, what are you going to say? What is your answer to all? Look how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still did not answer. And Pilate was amazed. So Jesus doesn't defend himself again, fulfilling prophecy of, uh, that, that the, lamb, the lamb would be silent before the slaughter. But Pilate still doesn't want to get involved. He tries to put an end to it. He does this thing. See, uh, the, the festival, the festival of Passover, every year Pilate had a thing where he would, he would release a prisoner to the Jews. It was a cool thing just to show, hey, I know we're in charge and we put you guys down a lot, but we still love you, sort of. And so they would release a prisoner, and they would let them take part in that. So Pilate comes to him, verse uh, 16. Um, they had this one, verse 7, 7 uh, 15, verse 7. There was one named Barabbas. He was in prison with rebels who had committed murder during the rebellion. So a real stand-up guy. The crowds came up and began to ask Pilate to do for them, as was his custom. But Pilate answered, how about I release the king of the Jews for you? Pilate's still trying to get out of this thing. Man, he doesn't want to see Jesus killed. Hey, I'll release Jesus for you. But he calls him the king of the Jews. Um, he knew it was because of envy that the chief priest had handed him over. Pilate's a smart guy. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd so that he would release Barabbas to them instead. Pilate asked them again, then what do you want me to do with the one you call the king of the Jews? Again, they shouted, crucify him. Pilate said to them, why? What has he done wrong? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. Now listen to this verse. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas, had Jesus beaten, and then handed him over to be crucified. You see, Pilate is trying to release Jesus as part of this peacemaking with the people, but the crowd won't hear of it. Now, here's the thing. I'm fixing to squash some of y'all's memories of your pastor growing up, okay? Um, I've, and I've probably appreciated in my past, too, that the crowds that were calling Hosanna when Jesus rides in on the donkey are the same ones that are crawling out crucify him. It's probably not the case. Remember that the crowd that gathered at Caiaphas's house the night before what we're reading right now were the Sanhedrin and all these people that they were bringing in to, to, to lie about Jesus. This was a crowd. This was a fake uh, march. This was a fake protest here, okay? Like this was all staged, the whole thing. 
the Jewish people, this was not a great cross-section of Jewish people. It was mostly the Sanhedrin, um, and they had put together all these false eyewitnesses. This was a crowd that had been put together for a particular purpose, and they are loud. And so instead of releasing Jesus, Pilate releases Barabbas. Imagine that. This guy who was involved in some pretty sketchy, violent stuff, the people choose to put him back on the streets. These people who have children choose to put him back on the streets over Jesus. Man, I can't imagine that. Last verse, again, sums up Pilate's motivation. We see Pilate trying to stand for Jesus, at some, maybe not because of belief, but just because the Jews are nuts. That's what Pilate thinks. Jesus says, wanting to satisfy, not Jesus, uh, Mark says about Pilate, wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas and hands Jesus over to be crucified. You see, Pilate does all of this simply to keep the peace. He knows the charges are trumped up. He knows Jesus is probably innocent of actual crimes, but to satisfy the crowd, he hands Jesus over to be crucified. Pilate, in this moment, whether he knew it or not, is choosing to reject the authority of Jesus by choosing peace over him. And as there's any that stomp on your pastor's toes of these motives, this is the one right here. This is the one. Because I'm a natural peacemaker. Like, I'm not a guy who's going to bust up in the room and tick everybody off. I'm the guy who's trying to make it, like, trying to bring people together, trying to, like, that's my nature. And so Pilate is trying to make a peace. And I'll just be honest with you. When we first bought our house, I gathered rather quickly that maybe some of my neighbors didn't love Jesus the way I did. And I told Kelly, I said, look, we need these people to help us with our trash cans when we go on vacation. Y'all know how important that is. You can't have that sucker out on the road, get run over. <laughs> like, Those things are expensive, man. I don't get one from the city. I got to buy one. Or y'all do too. If you get one from the city, you got to buy it. But like, I got I to gotta take care of that. So like, I've got, I've got, I don't want this awkwardness between me and my neighbors. Let's not jump into the Jesus thing real quick, right? What happens the first time my neighbors come over? What's the first? You ask this question all the time. But, hey, what do you do, Heath? What, what do you do for a living? Like, well, there we go. We didn't get them far into that. <laughs> it's like, well, I work somewhere. Uh, uh, no, but I, I'm a pastor. And there it is. Boom, and here we go. It was cool. I mean, I got to share Jesus with them. But like in the moment, I wanted to be weak. I, wanted, I, I was choosing in that moment. Again, you may say, Heath, that's, a little, that's not as bad as what we see Pilate doing. But it is. The motive was the same. I wanted to keep a peace instead of standing for Christ. So in that moment, my heart was sinful. Because I just wanted my trash cans picked up. You see, this is what we do. Oftentimes, we will not speak the truth of Jesus to others for the sake of our relationship with them, just to keep the peace. A neighbor, a coworker, right? Like you don't want to have this awkwardness between you and your coworkers because good night, you got to sit across from each other every day in meetings or whatever, or riding a truck together. Like this, we don't want that awkwardness. So oftentimes we won't speak up about Jesus so that we can keep this peace. But listen, guys, we don't have to be street preachers. Like go ask my neighbors. I don't go knocking on doors telling them they're all going to hell unless they repent. Like, I don't do that. But what I do try to do is when I have conversations with them, I try to show Christ to them. Not in a super heavy-handed way, but in a loving way. 
We cannot forsake the good news of Jesus in our conversations simply because it might create an issue between us and others. And here's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step off on something for just a second, though, because some of y'all have families. Some of y'all have families that are rocky about you being a Christian. I'm not saying go blow it up tomorrow. Like, what's coming up? Thanksgiving? Like, blow up Thanksgiving. Hey, y'all all need Jesus. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying find ways that we can lovingly introduce the gospel in these situations. We cannot forsake the authority of Jesus in effort to just to keep the peace with other people. So as we near this, the end of the gospel, according to Mark, we see Jesus being rejected four times. Judas chooses prosperity and money over Jesus. The Sanhedrin chooses power over recognizing Jesus' authority. Peter chooses protection of his life instead of aligning with Jesus. And Pilate chooses peace. And here's, here's the, the thing. Each of these four teach us valuable lessons about our own sinful motives that we've got to guard against. If we're honest, all of us at some point have probably chosen something over our relationship with Jesus. But I want to ask you this. Are any of those four things bad? Do you notice that? Is prosperity bad? Bo doesn't say that. Is power bad? Bo doesn't say that. Is, is protection or peace for your family and your friends, is that bad? No. Those are not bad things. But when those things become the greater decision maker in our lives instead of the kingdom of God, when we place them over Jesus, they become sinful. It's all about our motives. Christian, let me ask you, are you living your life this deep? Are you asking these hard questions about your own motives? Or are you just breezing through life, setting your own trajectory? Well, I don't drink or smoke or cuss or kill people. I ain't cheated on my spouse. God's happy with me. I don't know. What are your motives? What's driving your decision-making? What's driving the trajectory of your life? Are you considering at all your walk with God or your connection to the local church when you make decisions? These are hard questions, but they're worth dealing with. And listen, if you've already made a decision, you're like, Heath, uh, I'm, I'm guilty of a lot of those. Let me remind you, Peter was guilty of one of them too. And oftentimes we think about Peter being denied or denying Jesus three times. But remember, at the end of Peter's life, he was crucified just like Jesus because he stood. There was a point in Peter's life where he made the wrong call. He had the wrong motives. But Peter then recovered from that and began to never deny Jesus again. And so today I'm asking you, again, wrestle with this. But if you've already made mistakes, don't let it beat you up. Because you can be like Peter and it's a new day for you. And if you're not yet a believer, you're not yet following Jesus, let me show you the best part of all these texts. There was this man named Barabbas, and he was a stinking nasty dude. And he was fully deserving of the punishment that had been given out to him. The, the punishment had been given. He had been to court. He was now serving out his sentence. He couldn't even argue with it. But Pilate allows Jesus to take his place. The one who had done no wrong, Jesus, took Barabbas' place that day. And Barabbas was set free. All the wrongs he had done were gone in a moment. And instead of him in jail, in, 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 uh, in custody, it was Jesus. Listen to me. In the same way, you may think you're a good dude, but you're a sinner. The Bible says that. And the Bible says that because you're a sinner, Romans 6 says that you are deserving the punishment of sin, which is death separation from God. That's what you've earned because of your sin. 
but the one who didn't deserve any punishment at all took on your punishment. Jesus, he took your place, just like Barabbas. And though you still deserve your punishment, you deserve to be separated from God. I deserve to be separated from God. The Bible says that those sins have been removed because someone else stood in our place. This week I had the opportunity to walk a six-year-old boy in our church through this very thing. And he understood that he deserved separation from God, but that Jesus had died in his place. And I, I said, do you understand? He said, yeah. And I said, well, here's what you need to do. You need to turn from your sin. It's this fancy word called repent. And I showed him what it looks like to repent. Here's what it means. It means to turn from your sin. I'm living this way, but God, I want to start living for you. That's what it means to repent. And then you, I told him, I said, you need to trust in Jesus as the only one who can fix you. I said, can you fix yourself? He said, no. I said, who can? He said, Jesus. I said, do you trust that fully? He said, yes. I said, bud, do you commit to follow Jesus the rest of your life? And he said, yes. And in that moment, God saved that boy if he hadn't already done it because he believed in Jesus. And today, whether you're six or whether you're 106, I don't think any of you are there, but you can, some of y'all hitting grandma. All right. Um, I saw it back there. Um, But you can trust in Jesus too. Today, the same Jesus that saved Rhett Tribble on on Thursday stands ready to save you. We're going to give you an opportunity. We're going to give Christians an opportunity to wrestle with these truths, and we're going to give those of you who are not yet believers an opportunity to talk to to me or someone near you, if if you're more comfortable with that, about how you can trust in Jesus. But we're going to sing one more song. The altar will be open for you to come and pray for yourself or other people. I'm going to be back by the back um, to to talk with you um, and and, uh, answer any questions you have. But I'm going to say a prayer, and then we're going to stand. Father, I thank you, uh, God, for who you are and, and uh, God, I thank you for your truths that we've read today. And God, I thank you that, uh, God, you didn't give up on me. Um, God, every single time that my motives are wrong, God, and I'm, God, this week as I've wrestled with this message, I realize, man, it happens a lot more often than I realized. That my motives are just impure and I make wrong decisions, God. I don't, I don't consider your kingdom first in my decision making. God, even as a pastor, God, you keep showing grace to me, just like you did Peter. You keep giving me more opportunities to stand for you. And God, I'm thankful for that. God, I pray for anybody here and here who's just blown it in the past. In the recent days, God, they've they've not stood where they should have. They've chosen power or protection or peace or prosperity over you. I pray that they would feel that same grace today that I feel this week as I was preparing this message. God, they would know that that doesn't define them that they have today and they have tomorrow and the next day and the rest of their life to begin to stand for you. And God, I pray for those that may not know you that they would trust in you today. God, help us to honor you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Guys, let's stand. Let's stand.